0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Heinen. Greg is a senior associate in Foley's Milwaukee office focused on litigation. The best way for me to introduce Greg is to tell you a bit about how he ended up on the podcast. Greg emailed me a few weeks ago to say, Alexis, I've been listening to The Path in the Practice. It is so great. Please keep up what you're doing. And I responded, thanks, Greg. That's fantastic. Hey, do you want to be on the show? (laughs) So the conversation that you're going to hear is actually the first conversation that Greg and I have ever had. I think that's one of the most fun parts about this show because I don't share this very often, but a number of the conversations on The Path in the Practice are the first time that I have ever spoken to the guest. And this one is particularly fun because Greg also grew up in the Milwaukee area. And as many of you know, that is where I grew up as well. So as Greg shares aspects of his path to law school that happened in the, the Milwaukee area, I can't help but say, oh my gosh, I know that place for me too, or that was near my house. So please indulge me and in my nostalgia as you hear me reflect with excitement on so many of the things that brought Greg to Foley and Lardner. In addition to that, Greg just includes so much about his life and so much great advice in this discussion. He talks about the path that took him from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for college to the University of Virginia for law school. He shares some fantastic advice to law students, to summer associates, to new attorneys on how to navigate those times. And he also talks quite a bit about, I should say, we talk quite a bit about the importance of feedback and how as an associate, that really is your North Star And he shares about his litigation practice, he talks about virtual court hearings, and we talk a little bit about just what it's like navigating this weird time and the pandemic. And then Greg ends it by giving some great advice on the importance of putting people first. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Greg, welcome to the podcast. All right, let's just jump right in and start with your professional introduction.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alexis. So I am a business trial lawyer and associated Foley and Larger. I do commercial litigation across a broad variety of different industries, all the way from the pre-lawsuit nasty gram, all the way through the trial and the appeal.
0: All right. We're going to talk in a little bit more detail in a bit about the ins and outs of your practice, but let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: So I'm from Wisconsin. I grew, was born in Racine, which is south of Milwaukee, but moved to the Milwaukee area when I was pretty young, around two, and basically grew up in Milwaukee all the way through college. Uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, so Milwaukee, born and raised.
0: Okay, so normally most people would just be satisfied with you saying Milwaukee, but since I grew up in that area, I want further detail. City of Milwaukee, suburbs of Milwaukee, get specific for me.
1: City of Milwaukee, my dad was actually a lawyer for the city of Milwaukee, which might my- get into later. It figures into how I became a lawyer. And there used to be a requirement that city of Milwaukee employees lived within the city limits of Milwaukee. So we lived in the Story Hill neighborhood right by what is what was Miller Park, I guess, is now American Family Field, or will be shortly. And it moved when I was around 12 to the south side over by 20th and Grange.
0: This is really messing with me because I, w- I claim Wisconsin. I was raised in Wisconsin. I grew up in the northern suburbs of Milwaukee, but I am a good, I mean, closing in on probably 20 years removed between, you know, I left for college, my parents moved away. And when you say things like Miller, like the stadium's getting a new name and the Bradley Center's now the Fiserv Center, like my brain is just like, wait, what is happening?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of changes. It's been, it's, it's been a really good period for the city. I mean, I can only really speak to, you know, my time as an adult working in in the city, not as much when I was younger, but it just seems like there's been a lot of good things happening in Milwaukee for several years now, a lot of great developments, a lot of new things happening. It's it's a cool place to be for people kind of around my age, you know, late 20s, early 30s starting their career.
0: Yeah, well, and I guess, you know, you give a place two decades and it's allowed to grow and change. That would make sense. But anyway, okay, back to you. Before we get to, and I usually I'll, I'll fast forward to like middle school, high school, but just I'd love to get a sense of, I don't know, what kind of a kid were you? Hopefully that's a fair question. What what were you like before you attended college and law school?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I was definitely a smart kid, um, but I learned early on in elementary school. I actually felt like I needed to hide to a certain extent how smart I was. I felt like I got... I wouldn't call it bullying because I, I think it wasn't quite to that level, but it was definitely being singled out and kind of made fun of. You
0: can get excluded or singled out. Yeah, that's a yeah. way to put it.
1: Treated differently. I kind of tried a little bit more to fit in while at the same time, you know, school was very easy for me and I, I did not have any athletic talents to speak of. So I actually, by the time I got to high school, a lot of my kind of quote, unquote, extracurricular activity was working. I worked all through high school, 20 to 60 hours a week at a restaurant job, and then put myself through college working restaurant jobs. And that was a big part of what I did outside of school.
0: Tell me about the job. So did you work at the same restaurant throughout? Or were there multiple places that you worked?
1: So through high school, it was the same restaurant. It was actually uh, Cop's Rose Custard, which is famous in the <laughs> Milwaukee area.
0: That's amazing. Sorry, that was really close to my house growing up.
1: So I was at the one on 76 in Layton.
0: Oh, that's a different one. Okay. I grew up okay. in the one near the one in Glendale.
1: So. Yeah. 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 Really, yeah. But same ownership. That was all through high school then in college, I became a waiter at various restaurants, including Maggiano's, P.F. Jang's, places like that.
0: This makes me so happy. And I hope listeners know this. So let me give them a little behind the scenes of how this works. So, so Greg, I reached actually, you sort of reached out to me in that you're like, Oh, this podcast is great. And I was like, Hey, do you want to be on it? And we have not had a real conversation before. Like this is our first real conversation. (laughs) So as you tell me about yourself, there's things that just bring back so many memories for me. And if Listeners haven't noticed, given my my Wisconsin roots and Mil- and fully having a large Milwaukee office. There's a lot of things that just. Bring back nostalgia for me. So that is very exciting that you mentioned Cops Custard. I'm sorry. Let's get back on track. Now.
1: No, it's great. Hey, I mean, if you can't make it back up here anytime soon, we should, you know, let me know. We'll send you, a, you know, a ten pack of pints or whatever. Well, good.
0: and you know what? You know what? Let's just get specific for a moment. So, Cops, at least the, I think I only ever really went to the one location, but they're known for these like really large burgers. Like the burgers are oversized, and then of course custard that they're making. I always assumed fresh daily and some very unique flavors so you intimately know how that operation worked
1: <laughs> I do I literally did every single job in the place from you know custodian basically all the way to making the burgers and making the custard which is made fresh and is delicious although and
0: and is it just like are there a lot of eggs is that what makes custard different from ice cream this is what people want to know this is what we want to know
1: right (laughs) that's correct and that being a food scientist i'm going to leave it there but in essence that's correct yes and it's arguably more delicious
0: oh yeah wow this is amazing okay A number of of restaurants, and you said you worked in restaurants throughout college as well.
1: Correct. Yeah. And I okay.
0: And I want to separate this. One, I don't know. Are there lessons learned? Because there's been a couple other guests on the show who have just really talked about what they learned about people by being in different sorts of service industries, but particularly in the restaurant industry. And I I don't know. I just wonder if there's anything there that either taught you a lot about humans or you felt like maybe paved the way or taught you some skills that you still use today?
1: I absolutely would say that's the case. And I even recommend to you know high school kids that I talk to, high school students that I talk to, that they have some type of service job, be it in the restaurant industry or retail or what have you, because you learn how to provide customer service, how to take the need that someone's expressing you know, to you, sometimes very sweetly, sometimes very aggressively and mm-hmm. in a hostile way and respond in a way that will satisfy that need. And that's certainly for you know our profession, what lawyers do, That that's exactly what we do, just in a different context. So you learn a lot about people and a lot about what it means to provide service to your customers or your clients.
0: Absolutely. And I think this podcast will be out before most law students are going through OCI. I'm often asked by law students, OCI tips or interviewing tips. And we can't so much do this now because of the pandemic. But often I would say, get out of just doing a bunch of online research and memorizing things. I'd rather you be at a coffee shop talking to strangers, learning how to have just rapport with someone you haven't met before. And so, yeah, I mean, that experience, along with so many other things I'm sure you did, definitely just kind of builds that into you where you're used to talking to different types of people
1: couldn't agree with that more. And I note on the same line that the people that you work with and the people that you connect with at your law firm is ultimately going to be so much more significant to your practice and your day-to-day happiness in your job than any of the stats that you can read on a website. It's just, it's not even comparable.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right. So I'll stop talking about Cops, frozen Custard and a few other things. I will get slightly back on track, which is All right. So you shared where you went to college. We know where you went to law school, but let's get a little more into that story. So, you're you're high school age, and you mentioned your dad was a lawyer. So, did you know that law school is where you were heading, or what was your thought process going into even applying to college?
1: Totally. Yeah. It was the exact opposite. I did not know what I wanted to do. And I felt. Pressure from my parents, and I, I think a lot of this was actually just internalized for me. I don't yeah, think like they self-imposed meant to, too. Yeah, yeah, but they sort of said, "You're a really smart kid. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer." And for me, I thought if I became a lawyer, I'd be riding on my dad's coattails, which it was not the case. But that was my reaction. So I thought, well, I guess I, I guess doctor is my one option. <laughs> and
0: Going to med school.
1: (laughs) Right. And I went into college not really being excited about that or knowing exactly what I wanted to do. But I became a biochemistry major and kind of started college there, not thinking about the
0: law at all. Wow. So, what was the transition? Like, what, how did you change your mind?
1: unsurprisingly from my description so far, I it did not suit me whatsoever. I, I hated my science classes. I didn't even really like the idea of being a doctor, <laughs> I, I soon realized. And so I happened to take an international law class, which there's several of these sort of moments of, you know, you could call it coincidence, you call it fate, I call them mm-hmm. God, God sightings, where I took an international law class. I don't even remember why. I didn't necessarily care about international law, but the professor had been a professor at the University of Virginia, and the way he taught the class was very much like a law school class. And even though I didn't care that much about international law, I loved the format of the class. I liked reading the cases, and I thought, well, this just makes a lot more sense. I'm enjoying this a lot more, and I realized that I could change my major to something that really suited my my interests, my abilities. So I changed to English with a focus in creative writing and took a few more classes uh, on legal topics. That
0: is so interesting. I'm imagining it maybe one of those things where, because there's times when you're picking classes in college where sometimes you just have to pick based on timing or what's available or what fits your schedule. And so for whatever reason, you picked this international law class. No idea why. Very interesting what you said. I think you said God sightings. I also hear like you'll hear synchronicity or serendipity or whatever. And we know, spoiler alert, you end up going to the University of Virginia. So that's interesting. But that is so funny how these things that randomly occur are what ultimately can just change the trajectory of your life.
1: Totally agree. And there there were so many of them for me that led me to UVA and then ultimately to Foley when we get there that they almost start to see... Non coincidental, right? they yes. just stacked up yes. on each other. Oh my God. And
0: we have to make sure we talk about that because I have that with Foley as well, where there's like so many different touch points. Where anyway, well, I'll save that. We'll get to that in a bit. And also, the major you switch to, that is so smart, by the way, to make it writing and not just to go to pre law. I would not change my choices in life, but I think focusing on Writing is so much more practical for when one does go to law school and should you do something else versus these sort of, not to knock them, but these like amorphous poli-sci philosophy, <laughs> so, which I can say, I can make fun of that because that's what I did. But yeah, <laughs> I, that's a very totally smart decision.
1: Yeah, it teaches you a skill, right? Unlike, you know, a, a subject matter, which can be really useful, mm-hmm. but writing is a skill that for a lawyer is an essential skill.
0: Well, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit too, but also for a litigator, which is what you are, the a lot of the first few years, other than learning, you know, federal and state rules of procedure, is learning how to write. And so if you can come in with some strong skills, you are already head and shoulders above a lot of other people. But okay, we will get there. So you switch your majors, you finish, you finish college. Did you go straight to law school or what was the transition between the two?
1: I did go straight to law school. I really wanted to get my career started. I didn't I had an idea of what I might do during if I took a gap year, but I I thought, you know, now that I know that I want to be a lawyer, I should just progress on this path Let's and move it. forward. Yeah, and I was excited about the idea of going to law school. I applied broadly, but really wanted to get out of Wisconsin and go to the East Coast and I had had the Virginia connection with one of my uh, college professors who told me a bit about the campus, but they were also the first law school to respond to my application. And actually, the admissions officer gave me a call, which was very meaningful to me rather than just an email or a letter, right? And when I got to the campus, I mean, it just blew me away. Charlottesville is...
0: It's beautiful. It is a really beautiful campus.
1: (laughs) incredible. Absolutely.
0: Okay. That is interesting. And I also like what you said about you just wanted to keep going. And I think, I mean, even when I went to law school, you had people who would take time off. But I think taking time off is becoming more and more common, but there still is a pretty large contingent of people who go straight through. That's certainly, that's what I did. I often will joke how I had two weeks off in between undergrad and law school, but it it is interesting in, in retrospect. I don't think I would have changed it, but I do think for me personally, it was a bit of like, how does one get a full-time job. What would I do? Let's just push that down the road for a few years.
1: Totally. Absolutely. There's an element to that. I mean, I was like you and like many, I think that I didn't really have a conception of what, many professions did, including the one that I was looking at joining. You just don't know what the day-to-day is actually like.
0: Nope. You're not sure. Well, then I'm curious about your parents' response when you switched your focus. Was I mean, I'm assuming it's supportive, but I'm just curious, given that your dad was a lawyer, did he have thoughts, advice? What What did he think of it?
1: Yeah, they were always very supportive of that. No question. I mean, that was, I think, from their perspective, a logical fit for Mm -hmm. who I was and what my skills were and what my personality was and with my dad's background in particular. I think that was something they viewed as a natural choice for me.
0: Yeah, I always find it funny, though, when children end up doing something similar professionally to their parents. And I don't talk about this very often for whatever reason, but I'm technically in the same field that my mom was in. (laughs) And I was definitely somebody at one time who would have very intentionally chosen to do anything other than what my mother had done. (laughs) Like just Just to be very clear. So she actually went to law school but she never practiced and then ended up in that ho- the whole like affirmative action plan diversity training world and she actually at one point was a vice chancellor of diversity at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee interesting so yeah and like collegiate system government stuff but it's it's sort of funny because our our worlds are still different she was never in like a private practice. It's always kind of like public side of those things. But it's just so funny when you say that you're like, well, it's like my dad already does this. So clearly I should go do something else. Right. Well, and
1: that's how you feel. But then I think as you get older, often you realize that the reason your parents did that or were good mm-hmm. at it is because of kind of their makeup, their skills. Mm-hmm. And you probably have... Which you may share. Just exactly. admit
0: it. You may share some similarity.
1: Exactly. Whether you want to admit it or not.
0: That is ok, ok. So UVA made the impression, but ultimately you you knew, yeah, you know, want to get out of the state, want to get out of Wisconsin for a bit. And I'm assuming you applied to multiple schools, but ultimately, UVA won and you moved to Charlottesville exactly right. And so what is that transition like for you?
1: I loved it. I really did. I had never lived anywhere else other than was other than the Milwaukee area, really. And, Charlottesville is such a unique place, such a beautiful place to go to school or to do anything that just being there was incredible. But I also loved getting exposure to a much more diverse culture than I had grown up with. Milwaukee is unfortunately if you are not being intentional about getting outside of your circles, not a very diverse place. Yeah. And by, by contrast, Charlottesville was diverse both by its very nature, but also be, it was diverse from Milwaukee. It was, you know, people were from the South. They were from Virginia. A lot of them, a lot of them were from Well,
0: and just going to college. And the thing about Milwaukee, for those who don't know, is that it, it's also, it's pretty segregated. So the diversity that's there is very separate because some of you be like, oh, I think there is diversity there. But yeah, people tend to live in their neighborhoods or in their silos. And unfortunately, it's something that the Milwaukee area, the city is sort of, sort of known for, yep. um, I think, it's, on I, a national level. But then I, I also do think, like you said, going to college, you're getting exposed to all sorts of things, whether it be people, cultures. But for me, and it's not that different. So I went to undergrad in D.C., which I guess is maybe... Two hours or so north, 90 minutes north of Charlottesville. That's the only reason I visited UVA is because I think I was like learning about Thomas Jefferson or something.
1: Right. Totally. <laughs> and you take
0: a day trip down to UVA. <laughs> but a similar thing, you you get out of where you've grown up, and just for me, like I didn't I hadn't didn't know a lot of people from New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York growing up, because why would I? <laughs> like
1: totally. Yep, I was in exactly the same boat. And it's really fascinating too. I won't digress too long on this, but I've seen some data suggesting that Wisconsin is one of the states where there is a large percentage of people who were born in that state, while a state like Virginia is not one of those states. That's it's really interesting. Much more diverse in terms of people have moved there from other states.
0: That's super interesting. All right, so you but you're in law school, you're adjusting to being out of the state of Wisconsin. And you've been out for a number of years, and I always have to watch my pacing on these shows because we, we have to cover a, a fair bit of your practice, too. But let's talk just a little bit about how Foley, why Foley. And I don't know if you have any other comments on law school. I don't want to zoom past those. but. But let's talk about those things.
1: Yeah, I think I can link them up to a certain extent. There were more of those just crazy connections. When I got to UVA, we were in a small section of 30 people. Two of the 30, in addition to me, were from Wisconsin. Mm. And one of them, his dad, was actually a partner at Foley.
0: Interesting.
1: Which was a, a totally random connection but he became one of my closest friends in law school. And so we talked about Foley. And then when I came back for my 1L summer, I looked up on UVA's alumni network who was in the Milwaukee area. And I just reached out to those folks and asked to grab lunch, which to their credit, I think all but one of them responded to me like within 24 hours. Mm. I grabbed lunch with several of them. One of them was actually a different partner at Foley in the litigation department, Eric Massen. Uh, so he and I had lunch when I was a 1L and he talked to me about Foley. And that was kind of my first exposure to the firm was these multiple connections from you know being out in Virginia, even though I was from Milwaukee originally.
0: Well, that's interesting because not only is it cool to hear your story, but some tips are in there, back to the law students who might be listening, <laughs> the look up alumni from your school, you know, shoot them an email, don't make it an overly long email, and chances are, well, it used to be that you'd probably be at the school and you're coming home for a Christmas holiday or a break. Now chances are you're already home. <laughs> right. So- Right. But that's just really smart. And to learn about the firm now, and then for you, even though you were you know, itching to get out of Wisconsin for a bit, did you know that you wanted to return or was that up in the air at all?
1: That was very much up in the air. I was looking in DC. I was looking in Chicago and in Mo- I was looking in Milwaukee to a certain extent, but really that was more about Foley than it was about Milwaukee. And it's a comp, complex decision and family was a big part of it for me. My family is from the Milwaukee area. My you know, girlfriend at the time was in the Milwaukee area. And when I got to know more about Foley and the opportunity to do the highest caliber legal work while living in the area where I grew up and where my family was, that started to really seem it's like a no brainer
0: Yeah, Yeah, get the best of both. Well, and then also in terms of developing your practice area interest, did you go into law school with any idea of what you might want to do? No, I really didn't. (laughs) I wish people could see your face when you said that. It was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I, I
1: didn't really know. I thought I approached it from the opposite end which was hey i have these skills they line up well with being a lawyer i don't know what type of lawyer i yep. realize now that i really didn't know what most lawyers even did
0: right but you'd seen your did you'd seen your dad did you have like a set so you'd maybe seen what what his model of lawyer was but that doesn't mean you know what the full you know gamut of lawyers are what they do
1: exactly right exactly right and yes i Paid attention when my dad talked about his job, but I was also a kid and I paid attention the way a kid does when their parents talk right. about their job.
0: Yeah, you're like, eh, yeah, exactly. So, how did you figure out? And I have a feeling maybe, maybe when you're a summer associate, but so, how did you develop your leanings towards litigation over transactional?
1: Yeah, I had been leaning that way in law school because of moot court and mock trial. So as I progressed in law school and had the opportunities to get up on my feet and argue and to write briefs, I was like, okay, well, this is fun. I'm using my writing background. I really enjoy speaking, uh, just public speaking generally. I, I love doing that. And so that fit really well with litigation. And then I at Foley, I did when I was a summer associate, something that I always tell my the summer associates that I'm a project coordinator for not to do, to do the opposite of, which is I took basically only litigation projects.
0: Only litigation. Yes, that's me too. That's all I did. <laughs> which
1: looking back was an absolutely wrong choice. It was so short-sighted. I didn't have the opportunity to discover if I loved tax work or at least at a minimum, learn what our transactional attorneys did on a day-to-day basis. But that was what I ended up doing.
0: This this falls into one of those, do as I say, not as I do. Full knowing a lot of people are probably going to also do as I do or do as I did, but absolutely. And I I do recall... I couldn't understand the assignments. Like, so at Foley, for those who don't know, when you're a summer associate, it's all you know electronic. And even even back when I was a summer, you could you pick assignments. There's a little blur about what they need for you to do. And I think part of my issue was that I would read the litigation ones. And I'd be like, okay, I could, okay, they want research. I know what that is. <laughs> but the transactional ones, I but because I didn't know what it was, is all the more reason I probably should have done it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I tell again, I I've worked as a project coordinator for our summer program for the past three years, and i that's one of the first things I tell our summers is, even if you are confident that you are not going to be an employee benefits lawyer, this is your great opportunity to take an employee benefits project. We have phenomenal lawyers that work in every area in our firm. See what they do. And at a minimum... Yes down the line when you're talking to prospective client X and they're like, "Man, I have this employee benefits issue. You at least will have that kind of knowledge about these are our capabilities." Yep.
0: I'm just nodding as you say that. It's such it's such great advice because ultimately for a law firm lawyer, your goal other than just mastering your practice area is to truly understand all client needs, which are usually clients at large corporations, but to understand how your firm can service them. So that you can say, yep, we totally can help you with ERISA and, and executive comp. Oh, really? You're acquiring X. Our cross-border transactions team is amazing. And it's, it's so hard early on. I definitely did not have that understanding at all. So I hope they I hope they hear you when you say that. But it's such great insight to get because bottom line is the more you know about your firm and the variety of ways to serve clients, the better off you're going to be.
1: No question. The better lawyer you are and the more immediate access you will have to the resources of the firm because you know who you know to ask or where to go for the questions and you're able to, to talk in a, in a way that's informed about whatever that issue is or how mm-hmm. you can find the resources to address it.
0: Okay. So back to what I said. So don't listen to what me or Greg did by not taking any assignments outside of litigation. Yeah,
1: do the opposite, please. <laughs> But anyway,
0: so you took all these litigation assignments, which it sounds like they solidified or confirmed or whatever, that that was your focus.
1: They did. I enjoy the strategic aspects of litigation and I enjoy the oral advocacy part of litigation. And I I think no matter what, I would have been really drawn to those things. And granted, there can be a lot of strategy for transactional lawyers as well, but litigation strategy has almost a game-like quality to it, to a certain extent. You have
0: Once you know what's going on, yes, I think that's yeah, right.
1: You have the rules of the game, right? You have kind of the rules of civil procedure and the different moves you can make, depending on what pieces are available. And I love games and game playing. And so the opportunity to combine that with my love for oral advocacy and thinking on my feet, I did a little bit of acting in high school and I enjoy those opportunities that was kind of the perfect marriage for me for litigation
0: well so you did more than just have part-time or have part-time jobs in high school you were acting too all right we're getting a little bit more <laughs>
1: minimally minimally i was not the star but i i was in a couple plays
0: oh that's fantastic okay so you summer at foley mm-hmm. one thing leads to another you know you're coming back to foley the milwaukee office you start as a litigation associate. At this point, you've now been at Foley for seven or eight years. I think you're, you're JD class of 2013. So you are, I think, very squarely in those senior associate ranks. I am excited because I actually have... We have a fair amount of time now to talk about, about your practice, You know that some of the progressions over the years. I've occasionally whether it be good or bad on this show, not gotten too into the person's practice. So listeners notice it's called the path and the path is really big. Like those words are very large. And then it's like, and the practice, like that part's small. (laughs) So the few times I haven't gotten as much into the path, the practice, I'm like, okay, that's okay. But anyway, let's talk. You start as a first year in Foley. You're a litigator. I kind of just want to say now Now what? Like what happens now?
1: Well, it actually ended up being very Different than I expected. You have, I think, many people have a view of a big law litigation associate where you are really kind of like a widget on an assembly line, and you come in yes. and you're all you're going to do is doc review. And- That's right.
0: Here's ten thousand documents, and you are reviewing them for the next two and a half weeks,
1: go. Exactly. And you are you. You may not even talk to the senior partner, much less the client, and you're just kind of going to be buried in some room somewhere. My experience could not have been further from that. And I can say at Foley, obviously we have some very large cases for some very large clients. And yes, we do doc review sometimes. That's an essential part of building the facts for your case. But my practice from my very first year I was on teams working directly with senior partners, sometimes just me and a senior partner handling smaller cases, uh, sometimes streams of similar smaller cases for a particular client that got me substantive responsibility. I mean, I took a part of my first deposition with my fifth month at the firm. I did my first motion to dismiss hearing. I argued the motion. For a billable client, I think in my like seventh or eighth month at the firm, and th- that's not unique to me. Again, like it's not that every one of our cases is small enough to allow that, but there are those kind of opportunities, which I think is just huge for young litigation associates.
0: It's amazing to have it, but I also think it can be be daunting. So, I mean, I love working for a firm that can offer that substantive work and I I mean I I know our headcount I know how many partners we have I know how many associates we have and it's nearly 1 to 1 and I'm forgetting which direction is a little bit a little bit off but we we aren't you know highly le- you know quote unquote highly leveraged so I think it makes more more room for that and then just for client service purposes and cost purposes I think we do try to staff as leanly as we reasonably reasonably can but when you're straight out of law school and you're sort of tossed right in, and you know maybe it's you and the partner, or maybe there's you a, a mid level and a partner. It does mean that you get to kind of got to figure out what's going on.
1: It is terrifying, as <laughs> you described. I think an earlier podcast uh, in this series that the learning curve is almost straight up your first two years. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I felt, but fortunately. My experience at Foley in the litigation department specifically was Foley does a great job of providing formal mentoring, but the informal mentoring was incredible. One of my colleagues, Rachel Blyce, was on the same team as me of cases. And I was in her office. I've asked her like, I don't know, tens of thousands of questions about Everything from like, where do I find this statute? Uh, you know, my first week to who knows what, which was huge. But even to the senior partner level, I'll never forget, I've worked a lot with Trevor Will, who's a partner in Milwaukee. And I'll never forget one of the first summary judgment briefs I was drafting for him in my first year. He actually, you know, I had sent him a draft of the brief and he came back and actually came around and kind of pulled my chair around and sat next to me at my desk and went over the brief with me explaining, okay, this is why, you know, I'm thinking we should move this here and, you know, kind of see what you did there, but I would change it in this way. And so that informal mentoring was absolutely huge in starting to smooth out that learning curve.
0: Such important things. So I mentioned you before we started recording, I just did a law student, like a virtual OCI info session. This one was for the University of Southern California. And I get a lot of students asking like, how do I tell firms apart? And I was like, and I feel for them. It's very, very hard because a lot of ways you're like deciphering the tea leaves through like the colors on their website. I mean, and that's not going to do it. But one of the things I said was if you get a chance and this can be hard to work in, it's interesting to figure out what sort of feedback culture the organization has. And essentially what you described, in addition to just, you know, willingness to be asked questions, was that's amazing feedback to have somebody sit down with you. And instead of being like, thanks, Greg, not hearing from them, subsequently it was filed and you literally need to pull the filing <laughs> and like compare what you gave to what was filed. Uh, and that that's one way to learn. Lawyers should do that. Not everybody will have the time to to sit down with you. But is it a place where culturally whether it be, you know, associates or partners whomever would make it a priority particularly in the beginning to be like, hey, thanks for what you sent me. It's great. Here's my thoughts. And that that's actually that's really hard to suss out organizationally and I've I feel like I've said this story so many times, but I maybe only really said it on my podcast with Jay Rothman who's our CEO. Like when I was a summer associate, I had that experience with Mike Conway who was the then, I think he was the chair of litigation in Chicago, and he's a very senior partner. And he marked up a memo that I wrote as a summer and took a good like 30, 45 minutes to walk me through it. And it's funny. I actually emailed him that episode of the show just last week. And he was like, Alexis, I hope you weren't actually mortified. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Mike, no, I was really grateful, but you don't really want. And that's the the thing. And this is the key for the law students to be able to really appreciate that feedback and to not just want to crawl under a rock and be like, oh, my God, I'm not perfect. I'm so sorry because that is what's going to make you a good lawyer. And so my advice is always like, find that third year who you can pester because they just did what you did two years ago. Hopefully partners are very askable. But yeah, sorry, I could just riff on this forever, because I just don't know that students like hear it when we say it.
1: (laughs) It's awesome advice. And in my experience at Foley is that it is universally available to you. And granted, it's an important part of being a lawyer in private practice to be entrepreneurial. And you need to be entrepreneurial even sometimes with your mentoring and your feedback. That's right, exactly you right. You need to be yep. proactive in in asking for it because often people might assume that they've given you feedback, you know, and you just, you wanted a little more, right? Oh my
0: gosh. And differing communication styles. And I'll say, so even though my title is Director of Diversity and Inclusion, in a lot of ways, like I'm a talent management professional. So if it was up to me, I would change all systems to make everybody give everybody the most amazing feedback they've ever received, right? <laughs> like whatever it took for me to get that for the organization, that's, but unfortunately, resources are limited. It's kind of hard. I mean, so if it was, if it was up to me, I would just have all law firms would have this like, Brigade of talent management staff who would just stalk partners for feedback for you, (laughs) right? Write it up, get it to you. Like they could dictate it. Unfortunately, we're not there. So you're right. You have to be entrepreneurial and tactful, but still dogged, I would say, in getting feedback so that you can learn. Okay. And I, I will stop riffing on that. So- You get good early experience. Tell me a bit about, I mean, I've read your bio. You generally have what I would call like a really full service, general lit sort of practice, although I think I saw a little bit of like investigations sort of work in there as well. So tell me a bit about what you do, what your practice area expertise is. Yeah,
1: I am intentionally a general commercial litigator. I, you know, had good experience early on working for a few. Foley partners whose practice is much more along the lines of, hey, any of our clients that have a problem that either has led or will likely lead to litigation... I can help solve that problem. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter what the subject matter area is. If I need help in that area, we've got awesome lawyers who do that subject matter area. But I am great as a, a trial lawyer, again, kind of using my toolbox to figure out what our strategy should be and to present it to a judge, a jury, an arbitrator, whatever the case may be. So, But I've my experience has focused... In in addition to kind of the general contract commercial lit, I've done a lot of product liability litigation. I've done some antitrust. I've done um, some real estate litigation. So those are more of the semi-focuses of my practice.
0: So as I've been, I keep talking about advice to law students because we're gearing up for these virtual OCIs. So my head is very much in that place recently. And one things I've told students is when you're doing OCI, if you're comfortable, ask appropriate personal questions of lawyers. And here's one of the questions I recommend them asking. So what's keeping you busy these days, by the way, maybe sound, sound a little more formal when you do it. Side note to the law student. But so what are what are what type of stuff are you working on? You know, when you're busy, I would say at the office, but from home, probably due to the pandemic, what, what sort of things are, are keeping you busy?
1: It is a wide variety of different tasks. And I unfortunate fortunate, in my opinion, in my practice, to have everything from the very small two-party case that I'm handling, you know, right now you working with um, reaching, like drafting a settlement agreement related to a small two-party case all the way up to a set of litigations that is in courts all around the country. And so the tasks can be anything from, you know, responding to discovery requests. It can be, uh, you know, taking or defending depositions. It can be writing, you know, various briefs related to different motions it really depends day to day and in the pandemic it's involved a lot of virtual work too i've done gosh i don't even know how many remote hearings over zoom or webex
0: all oh, the virtual hearings tell and by the way tell me a bit about the adjustment to that i haven't had a chance to ask much about this of what has that been like adjusting to the virtual hearing world
1: it's really been interesting it <laughs> You have a you get used to the feeling of being in court. I mean, I've been in court a lot, you know, over the first seven years of my practice, and the idea of having a really substantive hearing—courts have done, you know, minor conferences over the telephone—but the idea of having a really substantive hearing is, over video conference is was really unique. But I'll tell you, Alexis, I I think that is going to happen for a lot of hearings for a long long time after the pandemic's gone because it's really kind of nice. You don't have to travel. It saves clients money on on travel time and costs. And you actually get to relate to the judge in a way that I think removes some of the barriers. You can just kind of talk about the motion and dispense with a little bit of the formality of appearing in court, if that makes sense. So I think it, it has actually been a real value add. Now, I will say, there are certain types of court proceedings that I think are borderline unmanageable in a virtual way, trials be it-
0: Well, trial, yes. And I, we actually recently had, so I was on the litigation department meeting, and I actually had to drop off before this presentation, but I think one of our partners was presenting on his virtual trial.
1: Correct. Yep. And one of his big takeaways was avoid virtual trials if possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, and he, he gave a great presentation with a lot of really helpful tips for them if you need to do them. But the problem is, there are so many moving parts to a trial that it's almost impossible, especially for a jury trial. To well, is his well. a jury
0: trial, by the way?
1: Gosh, I think I really hope it really was hope it a wasn't. bench trial okay. just before a judge.
0: I do not understand how and I, I've heard because, you know, we, we can't just have criminal proceedings like sitting there in the courts. I think I've heard that there's been some virtual jury trials with criminal proceedings. And I just I don't know. <laughs> like I just I and you I, know what? I say this because soon enough, add two years. I don't say this to disparage any litigator's expertise. I'm sure in a couple years, Foley and many other firms will be expert at virtual jury trials. We will learn <laughs> and grow. But for now, just my eyes grow wide at the thought of it. Well, and
1: you you may be right. I tend toward a view, kind of a hybrid view, where I think for probably forever, frankly status conferences, you know, motion hearings are going to shift to the majority of them being video. But I do think once we are, you know, thank God past the pandemic, I think that proceedings like trials will mostly continue to be in person.
0: Yep. All right. And I as we wind down, I have a couple things I want to hit on before asking you my final what's your advice question. The first, just circling back, the writing and focusing on writing in college, was it helpful? Did you find the fact that you knew how to write helpful when you became a litigator?
1: So I would say yes and no at the same time. Yes, because I think writing is a skill and the more you do it, the better you get at it, period. No, because the type of writing that you do- Legal writing. Yeah, legal writing as a litigator or as a transactional lawyer is very different from creative writing. And I had to- I wouldn't say unlearn necessarily. I had to learn a different way of writing. Creative writing can often be, right, for example, very flowery, a lot of description, very dramatized. And as someone, I mean, I'm half Italian. I like, you know, maybe adding a little bit of flair to what I'm (laughs) saying. As a litigator, it's actually most persuasive to be concise, direct,
0: and to the point. That's right. I recall feedback, and once again, you know, not While at Foley, but practicing at other firms, you'd get that like either shorter declarative sentences or I need you to make this a little more punchy, which usually means just a little bit more to the point. But as an associate, I do recall that I did not have a writing style or a voice. I just learned the writing style or voice of the partner that I was working for. And some may go through and systematically like remove adjectives, some are going through and peppering them back in.
1: (laughs) Yes, which is always hilarious because what you know, partner X just insisted that you do, partner Y will tell you is a terrible idea to do. But actually, that's a really useful process because it shows you that both of these lawyers, who are incredible, brilliant lawyers, approach this with different styles and you can learn from each of them and ultimately kind of take from them and meld into who you own. are and yes. your own style.
0: Yes. Well, and also back to the importance of humility and feedback that some people just have stylistic differences, do what works best for them. It's fine. Please don't take that personally. And then one other thing I want to touch on, because before we started recording, you mentioned how you have a 16 month old at home. And I just wonder, I don't know if you've had any commentary on, you know, balancing small child at home, whether it be during a pandemic or just in general while being, you know, a very busy litigator, at, you know, in big law.
1: It's been a really interesting world. And first of all, I want to say I feel blessed because he is 16 months old. I think that and I've talked to several of my colleagues who have school-age kids that's a whole different ballgame, trying to navigate virtual school. And, you know, are we in person? Are we not? And I really, I feel for them.
0: So you're like, it's not, you don't have to worry about what's happening in first grade. You're like, all right, he's here. We got (laughs) that.
1: Exactly. So really for me in this season, it's been a blessing because I don't have to travel in the same way. So I get, to, I get to be with him more frequently. And, yeah. you know, I told you before we started recording, he can't quite reach the doorknob yet. So he can't barge into to daddy's office. So we're actually in a pretty good place, but check, check back with me in three months and and that might be different. Right.
0: So that may change. It is funny though, for me. So my, my kids are seven and nine and, I've been grateful that they both know how to read because when the pandemic first started and the teachers just had to pivot and be like, here's virtual learning, my children could kind of read the assignments. Like we would guide them a bit, but if they had been in that like four or five year old kindergarten age, we would have had to sit next to them all day long. And, you know, judge my parenting as you will. I'm also grateful that I can be like, we're watching a movie, kids, and you need to leave me alone. <laughs> Whereas with the toddler set, I don't think that works quite as well.
1: No. And it, let me say that one of the biggest things my wife and I have learned when it comes to parenting is throw judgment out the window because you do what you got to do to, to parent oh, and, and now, love your children.
0: Oh, especially I just heard this on a podcast today, actually. And it was actually by Susan David. She is a, she wrote the book Emotional Agility. So, for anyone who's followed me on LinkedIn, you'd probably see me post about her. But she just made this point that none of us have a pandemic manual, right? I didn't, I didn't get one. Maybe you got one. I didn't get one, right? And we're all just doing our best right now. And you just have to do whatever works to get you through. These extraordinary times, but frankly, none of us have a manual to life or what our career is going to be. So it's this it's the same thing, I think, just ratcheted up. But okay. So on that note, let me ask you the final is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered or just general advice you'd you'd like to give our listeners?
1: Yeah, definitely, especially for law students who are just starting their careers, but this is applicable to everyone. You know, one of the core things that I believe is that people matter relationships matter people ultimately are the most important thing in life it's one of the things i love about this podcast is that you celebrate you know the stories of the people that make up this firm rather than just kind of the list of accomplishments or whatever it may be it's actually getting to know a little bit about the people and so my advice would be that value relationships over anything else try to meet people talk to people but above all value people i believe that we all have the same value dignity and worth and so that makes everyone important so treat them that way right
0: (laughs) oh my god that is music to my ears everything you just said (laughs) and okay normally i like to just like end it after the final question but you said something i talk about in probably every inclusion in the workplace training workshop education I do, which is this idea that most of us hold, I'll say all of us hold the same highest values. We differ in the way we reach them, the way we express them, and we can have conflict about that. But what you just said, I think is so true and so, so, so important. So thank you so much for that advice. And then also if people have comments, questions, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website? shoot you an email
1: of course always happy to talk to you know exchange emails or a phone call and once again we get past the pandemic it's a meetup for lunch coffee whatever if people are in milwaukee
0: well and with that thank you so much for being on the show greg
1: thanks so much for having me alexis
0: thanks for listening to my conversation with greg i am delighted to add on this outro with an important update which is that as of february 2022 greg has been promoted to senior counsel at foley congratulations greg Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.